0: Well, good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're studying the book of Philippians, and we're in chapter 3 this week. We're going to be in the beginning of chapter 3. And I love what Pastor has entitled this series. He's calling it Philippians, which is the obvious point. But then he calls it the pursuit of joy. The whole book of Philippians, the theme of it is joy. But Pastor entitled it the pursuit of joy. And I love that because I think for some of us, that's, that's exactly what it feels like, right? Joy sometimes feel like it's, it's just outside of our grasp, right? For some of us, man, we think we found it, and then things change, and it seems to slip away. I think for some of us, pursuit is exactly what it feels like sometimes. Like, I am chasing this thing, and when am I ever going to get my arms around it? When will I find that stability? When will I find that place? You know, but it's elusive. When we talk about joy, when we talk about finding joy, the pursuit of joy... Man, how do I get there? If you've never done something before, it's difficult to know how to do it. And so in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, or the apostle Paul, he writes, rejoice in the Lord. Later on in verse 3, he says, rejoice in Christ Jesus. But again, if I've never done this, I don't know what to do. I remember when I was a senior in high school, and I was a lot dumber than the seniors that you just saw up here. I was, I was a bit of a moron back when I graduated high school. I look at some of these guys, I'm like, I was so far behind where they were. But I remember I'd got this scholarship through Wegmans, right? And so, you know, my, the right thing to do, we thought I should be writing Bob Wegman, the owner of Wegmans, a thank you note. And my dad, he's a store manager for Wegmans, he's been there forever, so Bob Wegman was like up here but I'm an idiot, and so I'm sitting there like going to write this, and I'm just looking at a blank card, and I'm holding a pen, but I'm not getting anywhere, and I'm like, no, no, and so I I go downstairs, and I ask my mom, like, mom, I don't really know how to do this, and she had secretarial background, and so, you know, she understood, you know, and she's like, well, how do you want to start your letter, and I I just kind of looked at her with this kind of sideways glance, like, Dear Mr. Wegman, you know, and she kind of looked at me like this is how you're going to write this professional sounding thank you, you." Know, but in my head, the closest thing I could equate this to was thanking grandma for a sweater that she had got me for Christmas. You know, I had never written any letter to the president of a company before, and I felt thoroughly unprepared to do that. And so I think sometimes in the Christian life, in the Christian walk, we know what we're supposed to do. But man, I don't necessarily know the steps that I'm supposed to take to get there. I know I'm supposed to forgive, but how do I do that? I know I need to love, but how do I get there? And then Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Okay, I can, but how? How do I get there? If what we're studying is the pursuit of joy, then simply telling someone void of joy to rejoice, well, that feels a little simplistic, doesn't it? That feels a little trite. I want to start by discussing a few of the things that steal our joy. And then we're going to look at what brings it back. And so what sucks your joy? What steals your joy? I want to list three things for you. And you can put these on your outline that you received when you came in. The first thing that I think uh, is a legitimate joy stealer in our lives are circumstances. You know, sometimes there are circumstances that pile up. If anybody here has ever been through a major chronic illness or a a chronic health issue, you know that's like a life-altering thing. We we pray for people who are going through these things. We pray for things. But until you experience them, you don't realize how much it shifts the way that you live your life. And you might be headed down a path all good, and then, bam, you get hit by this, and all of a sudden, you're in no man's land. You know, there are legitimate circumstances that— Man, it can steal my joy, and I think health is one of them. I think another one under circumstances is money, too much or too little. I think those of us who have struggled wondering how am I going to make ends meet can know that that can just sap the strength and the joy right out of life. You can't sleep at night. You can't enjoy what you're doing. Every single moment you're wondering how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to take care of my kids? How am I? And, and, man, it can just consume you. On the flip side of that, I know people who are loaded and they are the most miserable people you'd ever met in your life. It can be the opposite side of that because you're so busy keeping it and and you never know who to trust and what their motives are and what's coming after that. I, I think that finances, if we're being honest, they can suck our joy. I think unmet expectations. Some people never get over that. Here's what I thought was coming my way in life. And it didn't work out that way. I didn't get the promotion. That relationship didn't go the way that I expected it to go. Here's where I thought I would be at 30, at 35, at 40, at 60. Here's where I thought I would be, and I'm not. And we spend our whole time thinking about that, and the joy just gets sapped out of things. The first thing that sucks our joy are the circumstances we're in. But here's the second thing that really sucks our joy, attitudes attitudes. Because here's the thing, and I'm going to give you some quotes today, but this one's mine. My circumstances are defined by my attitude. You hear that? My circumstances are defined by my attitude. The same sun that caused the one plant to wither is the sun that caused the other one to grow. It's what I do with what I have in front of me. My attitude. If you want a great sermon on attitudes, jump online and look at last week. Pastor Dan preached one on uh, Philippians two fourteen, where he says, "Do all things without complaining and disputing." Years ago, if you had asked me, you know, um, what sucks your joy, like what steals your joy, Bob? Years ago, when I was a young man, I would not have even hesitated. Hey, what steals your joy? People people steal my joy. The problem with this world is people. You know what I love is everything. You know what I hate is everyone. You know, like like the problem with this world is people. It turns out if your problem is with people, like, oh, these people and these people and these people and these people and these people, you don't have a problem with people. You have a problem with person, one person. The problem wasn't with people. The problem was with me. The problem with with the attitude that I held towards other people, Paul says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Paul wrote the entire book of Philippians from a prison cell. Think about that. The book is all about joy. The series is titled The Pursuit of Joy. And this man was chained up in a Roman prison. How bad is my life? I like these quotes. My youth team teases me. Because I'm always quoting Jeannie Mayo. And I tell them like, well, when you start saying things as smart as her, I'll start quoting you instead. But Jeannie Mayo said this, my attitude makes me a prisoner of my own experiences. You hear that? My attitude makes me a prisoner of my own experiences. The way that I choose to look at it, it can hold me right there and I never move on past it. I like what Albert Einstein said, weakness of attitude invariably becomes weakness of character. Weakness of attitude will always become weakness of character. There's a man named Viktor Frankl. He was a long-term Nazi captive. He lived in a concentration camp for years, and this is what he had to say. That man has some perspective on attitude that I don't have, on circumstances that I don't have. Here's what he said. Everything can be taken away from a man, but one solitary thing. The last of all human freedoms is the ability to choose one's own attitude in any given set of circumstances to forfeit this is to forfeit life. That's not a man sitting in an ivory tower in the penthouse suite, that's a man in a concentration camp. My attitude will determine my circumstances or at least the way that I view them. The third thing that I think really robs us of joy that just sucks us of our strength is comparisons and I think maybe more than the other two, comparisons. We love to compare. Everything in our life is about comparing. When I was a kid, the TV show was Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach and the guy who was like the most pretentious looking thing with his ascot and everything else. And He was just going to show you everybody's house so that I want to see how the other side's living. Pam and I have been looking for a house for like the last year. We're just kind of out there looking and seeing, you know, it's kind of time to to move on. And and Zillow will just do you wrong because, you know, you log on to Zillow and the first thing you type in is like, all right, Greece, New York. I'm looking for a house in Greece, New York. And the first thing that pops up is this two and a half million dollar home with like docks for the boats and yachts. And there's like a sauna in there. There's like 19 bedrooms and 47 bathrooms and everything that you could possibly need. And you're curious. So you start clicking through and then like, how come my house doesn't have a sauna? I don't even want a sauna, but now I need one. You know, like, like we start playing this comparison game where, so I'm looking at what's out there and then I'm looking at my budget and I'm like, well, these don't line up. Comparisons and they steal joy. On the flip side of that, when we took a trip to Brazil back in 2010, I remember coming home from Brazil after spending two weeks down there. Uh, we built a church on the Moju River right off the Amazon. And I remember when I got home, I just stood in my kitchen for a moment, and it was just this, whoa, I got it good. <laughs> like, like, man, comparisons. We like to compare two things, status and scars. We compare status, and we compare scars. Status, what I wear, what I drive, what I own, where I live, who I'm with, what I know, who I know. The things that I think define me. These things don't define me, but they do begin to steal my joy when I start playing the comparing game. I can't enjoy what I have anymore because of what you have. I'm constantly looking for the next thing, keeping up with the Joneses. I I put in a pool, and my neighbor put in, you know, his new yacht, and now I can't keep up with, with what he's doing. And all of a sudden, I'm not happy with what I have, the comparison game status, what I think defines me. Oh, I don't dress like he does. I can't sing like he does. Oh, I wish that I could do what he does. I wish I was athletic like he I wish I was thin like he was and had muscles like he does. You know, like we play this, compa- and we feel that we're defined by these things. The second thing that, that we compare is scars. This is what I've been through. The things that have happened to me that I think define me. I remember when I was like 12 years old, I watched the movie Jaws, and subsequently did not go swimming in my pool for the rest of the year because I was sure there was a trap door and that thing was coming for me. But I just remember the one scene out of this movie where they're sitting in the boat and you know, none of them really like each other. And then all of a sudden, like, they're sitting there and, and they're like, What's that? And he's like, You know what this scar is. And they start comparing. And the other one, like, throws his leg up on the table and he's like, This was from a thresher shark. And you know, it's manly stuff. And then the one guy, like, opens up and says, she, she broke my heart, you know. And there's like the quote about that and they're comparing. But we do that. I was camping this weekend with some friends and then I was, we'd made some chili and I was sitting there and I was stirring it over the campfire. But as I had said before, I'm not always the smartest individual. And so I'm holding one. Of the handles of the pot, and I'm stirring with my other hand. And then I think, like, well, the pot wasn't really made to be over fire for this long, and I'm worried, like, am I destroying my pot? And so, the genius that I am, I spin it and I grab the handle that I've been holding with one hand, and I reach over to the other side and grab the other handle that's been over the fire, but I don't think about it. And I lift it up over my head, and it gets up to about here, and all of a sudden, I'm like, Aah! You know, and I kind of try to, like, drop it without spilling chili everywhere. And I don't want to burn the rest of me with the thing. And so I set it back down. And I got this lovely blister going right now. And, and you know what my immediate thought was? You know, other than, like, oh, I'm glad I did this an hour into camping. This should make for a great experience. If I'm being honest, you know what my thought was? I hope it leaves a cool scar. Right? Like, like if I'm being honest, I want this thing to leave, like, this wicked-looking mark right here on my finger only so that I can lie about it later when people ask me what it's from. You know, I was wrestling a shark, you know, and and what happened was, you know. I kind of want to look tougher. You know why? Because we compare. We want to compare our status, and we want to compare our scars, what we've been through, the things that have happened to me that I think define me. Here's my excuse for why I am the way that I am. Here's what he did to me. Here's how I was neglected. Here's how I was mistreated. Scars don't define me, but they keep me living in a place that steals my joy. When I'm holding on to that, it's like an anchor that tethers me to a place that I can never let go of. And We want to compare. This is is who I am. This is what defines me. You know, Paul talked about comparing status. This goes way back. This isn't a distinctly American trait, though I do feel we've perfected it. He talks in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. He talks about status according to the Jewish way of looking at status. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In that culture, that meant I have been set apart from birth. I've been following what the Lord wanted me to do. He says, I'm from the stock of Israel. I'm patriotic from a patriotic nation. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. They had this proud history of being warriors. The, even the term Je- Benjamin, it means the son of my right hand. It talks about strength. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a re- religious man, I was a model citizen. He says, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. That means I was educated beyond my peers, and I was respected by everyone. He says, concerning zeal, I persecuted the truth or the church. This guy practiced what he preached, and he was basically a pioneer and a leader. Well, other people were looking at things and saying, Well, we don't approve of that. Paul was the type of guy who's gonna go out and do something about it. He says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. He felt justified by his accomplishments and better than the rest. Paul says, You want to compare status? Step up. I'll come up against any one of you with what my status is. But here's how he concludes that in verse seven, he says, but these things that once were gained to me, these I have counted as lost for Christ. He says, everything that I used to compare and everything that I used to put stock in, what I said, this defines me. This is who I am. And quite frankly, it's what makes me better than you. I've left it all, but it's worthless. It's rubbish. It's garbage. It's nothing compared to the light of Christ because of the value that Christ holds all of that stuff just fades away all of that stuff is just lost Paul also knows about comparing scars in 2 Corinthians 11:22 through 30 he says oh you want to talk about how hard you have it let's talk you want to compare scars let's go he says are they ministers of Christ he says i am more in labors more abundant he says i've worked harder In stripes above measure. He talks about the beatings that he's taken. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. I don't even know what that means, but it's worse than I have it. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. This is when they would bend them over a stoop and lay their back bare and take whips and just just beat them with it. And the law was you could only do 40, so they would only do 39 to make sure that they didn't overdo it and then have to be subject to the same punishment. He says, that happened to me five times. I received 40 stripes minus one. Tell me again how hard you got it. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. The desire of this was to make it so you could never stand up straight again. He says, once I was stoned, the type where they throw rocks at you until you die. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep in journeys often. In perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils among false brethren. You want to talk about not knowing who to trust? I can't trust my countrymen. I can't trust foreigners. I can't trust people who seem to have the same agenda as me. He says, in weariness and toil. And sleeplessness often, and hunger and in thirst and in fastings often, and cold and nakedness, beside the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Anyone here want to get in line to compare scars with Paul? I don't want to compare scars with Paul. Like, you win, bro. Like you, I got this burn from a pot of chili. <laughs> Here's how Paul ends that story. He says, you want to compare status, I'll talk all about status, and it all goes away compared to Jesus. He goes, you want to compare scars, I'll give you all of my scars, but here's how he closed the scar book. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress. I take pleasure in them for Christ's sake. And here's the kicker. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. God is glorified by my weakness. People are able to see what God did through these circumstances. Does it stink that I was shipwrecked? Sure does. Did Jesus get the glory for saving me? Does this think that I was beaten with rods? Absolutely. But we got the story of Paul and Silas in prison coming out of that one. How, after being beaten with rods and, and shackled for being falsely accused, by the way, man, there was a whole household that was saved and it started a church in the area. He said, God uses this stuff. And so, my circumstances, my scars, man, they're not even about me. This isn't a scar. This is a reminder of the grace of God and how He's using me. See, here's the thing. I don't want to compare scars with Paul, but Paul understood this concept because he said, There's one greater than I whose scars are deeper than mine. You want to compare scars? You want to talk about how hard things are? You don't even know. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's compare scars. If we talk about circumstances and attitudes and comparisons, let's turn and flip that and let's look at Jesus. Here was his circumstances. Jesus was enjoying paradise with the Father and the Spirit. He didn't need anything. You recognize Jesus doesn't need you, right? Like, Jesus is not made complete because I accepted his friend requests on Facebook. He's not, like, sitting there with bated breath wondering, Jesus is complete and perfect. God is complete and perfect and whole without me. That's the glory of the fact that he brings me in anyway. In fact, the only thing that I bring into heaven with me is the scars that Jesus wears. No, here's the circumstances. He was in perfection. He was in paradise but when we blew it and we lost our ability to get back, he came down here to earth to fix that for us. He was born into an impoverished family. He was branded because of the circumstances surrounding his birth. He lost people close to him. He spent his life serving others But then he was hunted by the people he came to save. He was betrayed by one of his closest associates. He was denied by one of his best friends. He was beaten, humiliated, and murdered on my behalf. Those were Jesus' circumstances. But here was Jesus' attitude. Paul, earlier in Philippians, writes about this in chapter 2. He says, let this attitude be in you. He says, let this mind be in you who is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God forever. He says, let this attitude be in you that was in Jesus when he humbled himself. Hebrews 12, two says this. Is we're looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I love that in my circumstances, That he's the author of my faith, he wrote this story, and he's the finisher. That he who began the good work in me will be faithful to complete the good work in me. That changes my attitude about my circumstances because of who I'm in the boat with. Jesus hasn't let me go. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus understands what joy is based on what's coming. He didn't love the cross. He endured it because of what was to come. Jesus knew what it meant to humble himself, but he chose his attitude based on what would come of it. And so Jesus' scars In John chapter 20, verse 27, we see Thomas putting his hands in. Even in his glorified body, Jesus has the reminders of the cross. In Revelation 5, 6, John sees Jesus in heaven looking as a lamb having been slain. Once again, the only man-made thing in heaven is scars. If I'm comparing my scars, here's what's gone wrong. This is why I'm miserable. You don't understand how I was left. You don't understand how I was treated. You don't understand what's happened in my life. It's easy for you to sit where you are and say, oh, yeah, you need to just get over it. You're right. But this was Jesus' circumstances, and here are Jesus' scars. And he's the one that says, rejoice in me. Paul says in Philippians 3.3, rejoice in Christ Jesus, having no confidence in the flesh. The flesh is what I can do, and it's nothing to brag about. I'm gonna close with these thoughts. Joy is a matter of perspective. If you're a Christian, the source of your joy is from seeing what Christ has done and accepting that it was from a place of love for us. When I look at my status and my scars, I wind up unfulfilled. It's never enough. For some of us, is your life defined by joy? If you ask people to say, write down the three things that best define me, would joy be on the list? But I go to church, I'm trying to do this Jesus thing. When I look at at religion as a way to elevate my status, I end up unfulfilled and often deceived. Gang, I think what happens sometimes is we look at other people who are religious and we say, well, they're religious, but, but they're getting it wrong. You know, they're religious and they're, they're sincere as they fly planes into buildings, but they've got it wrong. And we look at other people's religious acts and we think, well, I'm so glad I'm not like that. When in reality, we are. I think the reason so many of us are missing our joy is because we're so good at religion and so bad at being with Jesus. We're so good at looking for what strokes my ego and what makes me happy. We consume church. Oh, this is my favorite teacher. Oh, this is my favorite worship leader. Oh, this is my favorite. You know what? These, these seats are uncomfortable. This church has more comfortable seats. And, and listen, I'm not trying to put down, I hope that there's good teachers and good worship leaders, and I like to be comfortable, but have I fooled myself into thinking I'm where I'm supposed to be when in reality, I'm just playing church? When I look at Jesus, not church, not Christianity, When I look to Jesus, when I'm walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, when my life is defined by my relationship with my Lord who loves me, when I look at Jesus, I find acceptance. So I don't need it elsewhere. I find love, real love. And so I don't need to lower myself to find a cheap imitation of it. When I look at Jesus, I find my purpose. And so I don't need to go searching. He's made it so abundantly clear and he's equipped me to do it. When I come to Jesus, I find that I'm defined as who he says that I am. I'm loved because he loves me. You're beautiful because you're made in his image and filled with his spirit. I'm satisfied in the work that I'm doing because it has eternal significance. I don't care if the guy next door is a multimillionaire. You can't take it with you. Am I living for what makes me happy now or am I looking towards the future? Paul said, I count all of these things as loss. But I've gained Christ. So I've gained everything. I'm thrilled because I'm included in the work that God is doing. What we do is not always glamorous, but it's almost never dull. <laughs> I get to be a part of something much bigger than me. I get to be included by the God who loves me. My attitude and my outlook, now it has a compass. Now I'm not just meandering and wandering lost. Now I have sights set and I know right where I am and right where I'm supposed to be going. My scars, my scars now, are used to help people where they are. I want to be real clear. I'm not trying to be cheap about what you've gone through. If you say to me, Pastor Bob, you don't understand what I've been through, you're probably right. I doubt very much that I do. And so if I'm coming off as trite, I want to apologize to you. That's not, that's not what this is. But I know my weaknesses and I know my failures and I know I know that God loved me anyway. And there's a beauty in that. I like to think that my marriage is a healthy marriage. We're learning and we're growing, and quite frankly, that's a lot of the fun in it. Like, I joke around that Pam's been married to a few different guys and they've all been me because I keep changing. I'm not, I'm not who I was. Praise God, I'm not who I was. I learn and I grow, but you know what? You know what makes it a healthy marriage? First of all, the purpose of our marriage is not to fulfill one another. The purpose of our marriage is to glorify God. And that, that makes forgiveness a lot easier because I don't count on her to make me whole. If you're waiting for somebody else to make you whole, you're never gonna get there. I just want you to know that up front. That's not how it works. But Pam knows the worst of me. She knows stuff that y'all don't know. You get to see this cleaned up image up here. You get to see, I mean, my shirt is tucked in. I'm not lying when I tell you that happens once a week. (laughs) I feel like this is false advertising. Pam knows the worst of me, and it doesn't matter. She chooses to love me anyway. There's security in that. That allows me to love her on a deeper level. This has nothing to do with the message, but for those of you that are not being honest with those who you're in a relationship with, Don't be surprised why your relationship is weak. Jesus knows worse than Pam knows of me. And I've told her everything, but Jesus understands the hearts and the motives and he understands the weight of sin and he loves me anyway. And so my weaknesses these things that were once these these scars and these blights on my life, these things that had me held down and ashamed, I'm never gonna wear them as a badge of honor, but I'm able to come alongside other people who are struggling and say, yeah, let me tell you about my life. Here's where I was weak, and here's what Jesus does. Here's how he helped me Now let me put my arm around you and let's walk together. Let's do this together. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our tribulation, who sees your scars and is coming to comfort you. Why? Why? that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I may have pain in my life but because of Jesus I'm going to ascribe purpose to that pain. I want to take that you use it the right way. When I'm with my God who loves me that's where joy is. Psalm 16:11 says in your presence is fullness of joy. When I'm with my God who loves me, not when I'm in church, not when I'm listening to worship music, although those are good things. When I'm with the God who loves me, that's talking about intimacy. That's talking about relationship. That's talking about the deep places where where, man, he knows this and I know him and he's led me and we've got history together in the presence of God is fullness of joy. When I'm with the God who loves me, I'm free because I don't got to hide nothing. Here it is and he's already accepted me. Doesn't mean he's going to leave me there. When I'm with my God who loves me, there's joy because I'm safe. He's my protector. He's my defender. When I'm with my God who loves me, I can be healed. There's joy in knowing that there's healing coming. And even like Paul, if my healing isn't coming today or tomorrow or anytime soon, I got the promise of heaven. There's no more pain and no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. To the seniors who are graduating, this is gonna go so quick. Your life is about to hit a time warp. There's the next one that lasts forever. When I'm with my God who loves me, I can be used. I have purpose that goes far beyond washing a car or painting a house or managing some people. My purpose is influencing eternity. It's got staying power. The pursuit of joy, honestly, is the pursuit of God. The pursuit of joy is the pursuit of God. It's when I'm looking at my own life that I'm miserable. It's when I'm looking at him and when I'm walking with him that that stuff matters because it's his problem now. True joy is in finding your purpose, your identity, your healing, and your home in the one who made you, and the one who loves you, and the one who keeps you. And when you're in the presence of God, and I'm not talking about once or twice a week. I'm talking about walking with him daily. That's when you start seeing the fruit of the spirit the fruit being the evidence of God in your life. And it's not something that you work at. It's not behavior modification and I'm supposed to look a certain way. What it is is because I'm I'm planted with my Lord, because I'm in the word, because I'm in prayer, not just to go through ritual, but because I want more of Jesus, because I want more of God, because I'm with him, because he's with me, you can't help it. Joy becomes naturally produced to the point where one day you wake up and kind of wonder, where did that come from? I thank God that I'm not who I used to be anymore, but it's not because of habits or practices. It's because of relationship. And so here's what I want to do before Pastor Pat comes up to close us out. I want to ask the worship team to play I Will Exalt one more time so that we're giving the glory to God. I want to ask you to stand with me. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. It's so easy to get distracted when there's people around us. This is like a five minute long song. You got five minutes. It is not going to kill you. Can we spend five minutes ignoring the people around us and ignoring the bills and the problems and the food or whatever you've got waiting for you soon as you walk out the door. Can we spend five minutes as we sing this song with Jesus? And for some of us, this is gonna be weird because we haven't done that before. We're real comfortable in a room where everybody's singing and it's okay because they're gonna drown it out. But to actually focus on Jesus, man, I don't know. what Can I tell you? You're never gonna get there unless you take that first step. You got to start someplace. But he promises never to leave you or forsake you. He promises that when you seek him with your whole heart, you're going to find him. And so here's what I want to do. I want to make the altars open and I want to encourage you. This is a great place to not be distracted because there ain't nothing to look at when you're just looking at great carpeting in front of you. There's no lights to distract you. There's no flashy anything going. Either where you are or somewhere in this room. Can we get alone with Jesus for a couple of minutes? Can we pursue God and in doing so find joy? Not with the desire of, man, I want joy in my life, so I'm going to pursue God, but with the desire of, Jesus, you did it all. You deserve what I have. And so here's my status and here's my scars. Here's my attitude. Here's my circumstances. What do you want to do with them, Lord? Lord? Can we worship God for a few minutes together, church?